Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Chunkaluta. Oh, I gotta stop it. Dang it. <laughs> David's screwing up again. I'm sure people don't mind. <laughs> um, but welcome back to Mark's Madness. We read books, uh, now part of the Chunkaluta Network. Um, I'm David. Um, Prez is, Hello. Yeah, Prez is here again. Uh, Shugbani 2 will be back soon, um, but... Uh, is busy right now, so it's just us two today again. Um, <clears throat> and as always, we are jumping back in to the Gramsci reader that Prez uh, put together for us. We're going to be on slide 76 of the, the master reader, the 330 slide reader. Um, so whatever book is screen capped in there that's that's called a Gramsci reader says page 50, but it's slide 76. That's the pertinent one. Um and before we get into that, uh, we like to talk about current events. Hi there, David here, interjecting with a correction that I forgot to issue yesterday. We used to do corrections with in the front when we had them, uh, long before we even had current events. Um, anyway, uh, someone had brought up to me, I had once recorded a couple episodes on the Yugoslav Wars um, and the end of Yugoslavia in order to detail what color revolutions are. And the purpose of that was a few things. Uh, one was uh, Western narratives, uh, Western narratives that had taken what the horrors and the, the genocides conducted under uh, Radovan Karadzic and uh, basically assigned them <laughs> to Slobodan Milosevic because of Slobodan Milosevic's Ab, um, Serbian nationalist advocacy, um, you know, in his, his rise to power um, and, and the fitting of Western narratives there to, to make them official bad guys. Um, and someone felt that well, what I said had come off apologetic for Srebrenica, which is not something I want to do. I am not here to apologize for the horrors of genocide. Anyway, um, so I just wanted to, to, to uh, issue that correction. We've pulled the episode um, I had a few overarching points that I just, you know, want to, to point out one, um, again, you know, uh, Milosevic, the, the, it's the, the short and like the tried at the Hague, uh, which I made a point that obviously like George Bush doesn't get tried at the Hague. There's, there's some colonial bias there, but also when you use it for, uh, Milosevic, it's very specific that you're saying tried at the Hague and not convicted, um, because he was, not found guilty before his death, and then posthumously uh, found innocent in the trial of Karadzic. Um, that does not change that Srebrenica was a horrible genocide. Uh, I said that I understood that some people really try to push away from the genocide word uh, because usually that's a tar that's an ethnically targeted, which is this, this Srebrenica certainly was. Usually, it's an ethnically targeted um, situation with. Uh, one group clearly in power uh, against an, an ethnic minority. Um, and this was a brutal civil war with massive war crimes uh, committed at all sides. That does not change the scale of Srebrenica was much higher than anything else that had happened. And of course, you know, killing civilians. Civilians were not the ones that conducted any of the, the earlier war crimes in the war. There's no vengeance to that. You were just killing innocent people. Uh, and that's an inexcusable horror. Um, I also, you know, wanted to make the point that the U.S. specifically withheld financial aid from Yugoslavia unless they had specific leaders that the U.S. approved of um, based on policies passed in the mid-80s, which I had cited that the laws at this time I don't have in front of me now. Um, and of course, you know, George H.W. Bush was, quote unquote, not the head of the CIA when he was running for president <laughs> um, in 1980 and became vice president under Reagan. Um, but, you know, he definitely was running the the. the CIA very much because there was there was no official head of the CIA for a few years there um, and then immediately you know you had uh, the horrible speaking of genocides um, you know contra wars and 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 uh, death squads across Central America as well as you know just general genocides against indigenous people and and communists uh, across Central and South America under Reagan and Bush uh, you have um, later on, you know, in years, the, the, the uh, highway of death. So, you know, the U.S. liked its genocide. I'd also made the case, and some people have made this case, that, that the troops were kind of drawn into Srebrenica. That was not, that does not excuse uh, a horrible genocide being conducted on civilians there. 
Um, I also had done this all to help people understand that this was the first war and it, it was drawn in by the U.S., but, you know, there was also internal contradictions like any other war. Uh, there were horrible genocides and war crimes and that war had settled. Um, and that war was not, uh, you know, any sort of like, uh, it was it was basically spun up by the U.S., but but it was very very real. Uh, and then there was a second war, um, and these were the the, the wars over Kosovo. Uh, a lot of people that that weren't around in the '90s didn't you know sometimes even realize this was a, a second war. It all blends together in a lot of people's heads, uh, where they were still going after Milosevic very much, um, and they used a, a group called Otpor. Uh, which later became Canvas and now literally trains people for color revolutions. And this was the main purpose of these episodes to show people what a color revolution are. Historically, they're generally represented by colors um, of the movement, not that you can be represented by a color and not be one of these uh, Western-backed, um, astroturfed, quote-unquote, revolutions, um, and not that you can't be one of these revolutions and not re- represented by a color, but generally they're represented by color. That's why they're called color revolutions shorthand. Uh, and the way they work, you know, they generally have groups, typically student groups, protesters going in and, and, and trying to get uh, sympathies from other countries while causing disruptions um, and then appearing to be more of the public majority when they're really not uh, in order to, you know, work up propaganda and wish in Western sanctions and bombings. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. In fact, uh, this was right after the Soviet-Afghan wars had wrapped up um, and the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And so, you know, I, I had even made the point that in 1988 um, and the MAK, uh, which at the time was led by Abdullah Azam, had moved out of Afghanistan um, with a lot of the other um, you know, right-wing Islamic jihadists that the U.S. had had funded and weaponized in primarily Operation Cyclone, but other operations as well. Uh, and then in 1989, when Azam uh, died um, in, a, I believe, a sewer bombing, um, <clears throat> that is when, you know, Second Command Osama bin Laden came in charge of the MAK, and they, they formed the uh, Al-Qaeda in uh, um, Kosovo. Uh, Kosovo's army that was fighting on the western side was these you know, moving um, jihadists. This does not change that Kosovo was the, the poorest area in Yugoslavia and uh, was full of, of um, Kosovar Albanians, um, ethnic Albanians for a long time. Um, so it's not like there weren't some separate, uh, separatist imp- uh, sympathies, but it was not really <laughs> that, that uh, uh, um, you know, organic of a war Right. Um, and so that was the point of Opor becoming Canvas and them training um, people. This is also, you know, Joshua Wong was was trained at at similar institutions. But that's that's how color revolutions work. Right. People are trained up to lead and organize country toppling revolutions. Anytime you see someone like, you know, we yearn for freedom. Uh, we want this leader out. Uh, we just can't take it anymore. We, 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 we yearn for and you can't like specifically say what their demands actually are, right? What, what are their economic demands? Are they wanting, you know, more pensions? Are they wanting um, to, to have health care? Are they wanting to, you know, stop in inflation? You can't even name that. You just we My people yearn for freedom. That's a fucking color revolution. Uh, and that was the point of those episodes. Um, so some people over the years have, have taken that either as like the first um, Yugoslav war because it was egged on by the U.S. and those policies, uh, some kind of false flag and had a very real and brutal civil war that destroyed families and lives and created um, millions of deaths and refugees. Um, but, you know, they've also, um, uh, but also I, I, you know, apparently left out there a sentiment that made it feel like uh, it was, you know, excusing uh, the horrible crimes in Srebrenica or, you know, equating them to the other war crimes in the war rather than contexting it. And that is not something I ever want to do. So this is that correction. And we've pulled those episodes and I hope to, in a better organized fashion, re-record them at some point. But regardless, I don't want to leave that kind of sentiment out there. Thank you. Um, so... <laughs> When it's been three weeks, that means a lot of stuff's going on. Uh, it means I feel a little bad because sometimes we miss some current events, but then they're not current anymore. And, you know, I, I don't know unless they're, you know, important. We don't need to necessarily go back and talk about them. So we're going to talk about the ones that truly are current. And I think the biggest one right now is in Niger. 
Right. So there's obviously, you know, U.S. Empire is everywhere and, and all European, you know, including French Empire, especially across Africa is uh, everywhere and colonialism is everywhere. And that's why, you know, uh, we're decolonial, we're Marxist. Um, and in Niger, it's kind of followed suit recently from Burkina Faso and Mali, where uh, they've had, you know, people's revolutions to take down Western backed governments. Um, I think in all three cases, it was executed uh, by a coup, which is usually the West's tool to crash socialist revolution. Um, but these are very, you know, publicly backed coup, like the people very much support the coups in this case, because they're not from the outside, they're internal uh, uprisings, just using that lever of power. Um. And the West is not super happy because Niger is a major gold and uranium exporting uh, country, um, gold like much of much else of West Africa. Uh, and, of course, uranium, which is a major power source across Europe, uh, including especially in France. Where it's mostly France because a lot of after Fukushima, most of Europe started decommissioning because Europeans are insane. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> passing all these environmental laws and then saying we're going to get rid of the one carbon neutral uh, electricity source we have right now. Yeah. And, and anytime we talk about nuclear energy, there's, there's always a contradiction there because nuclear energy doesn't just fall, you know, it's not foisted upon us like manna from the sky, right? Like manna from God. It's, it's something that has to be gotten out of the ground like other types of energy and it has to be disposed of and put back into the ground. So it is the one carbon neutral uh, point of energy. So, you know, the world broadly uh, should certainly maintain the existing nuclear energy, most especially, uh, but also could use some more of it. But not only can it turn into an immense weapon, but where it's mined out of and especially and where it's disposed of, um, you know, you don't get the warnings, right? It's not Simpsons glowing green. It looks very mundane, but it's definitely um, having, you know, massive uh, chemical reactions going on with it, right? It's nuclear energy. And so it can be something where, you know, getting more uranium out, that's that's a form of uh, we've talked about environmental racism. Right. You know, that's something that's extracted in the United States and Canada, much like oil and other energy sources along um, indigenous lands. And it causes water poisoning and cancer. And so when it's drawn out of the ground um, and where it's (laughs) where it's uh, mined out of. That is a massive issue for, you know, anyone who lives in that area, unless the mining is more careful. And of course, they don't put this by populations that they care about. So they don't have to be careful that mining. They do it as cheaply as possible. And so Niger is no stranger to that. Um, And in order to power France, in fact, I think it was it's like 11 percent of France's uranium, which is like 18 percent of their energy. So it sounds like a pretty small percent, but that's a huge chunk already. And the way they put it, because it's a lot of domestic energy, is like one in three light bulbs in France is powered by Niger's uranium. And yet 98% of Niger is without electricity. So they're not getting the benefits of this, just the envi- environmental destruction. Um, and and um, like you said, Prez, in the meantime, you know, a lot of Europe, instead of maintaining <laughs> the existing nuclear energy um, after... Um, Fukushima. And of course, you know, there's been a history of, of um, nuclear accidents from uh, the disaster uh, in Ukraine in 86 in um, I'm suddenly Chernobyl. God, Chernobyl. I, I could, couldn't think of <laughs> couldn't think of the, the, the uh, name mean, of Chernobyl. Three Mile Island in the U.S. I was going to say there's a there's t- tons in the U.S., most famously Three Mile Island, but there's several nuclear meltdowns. And, and of course, the difference in character there. Right. Like, you know, you have a, a nuclear meltdown, nuclear fallout and you know, somewhere between like zero and and a handful of people will die directly from it, but it will take years off the lifespan of everyone in the surrounding area, cause cancers, things like that. And then when they report it for Chernobyl, um, because, you know, Soviet people were very worried about the long-term effects of that and evacuated the area, you know, you get this like 2,000 to 3,000 death toll and you get like Three Mile Island. It's like, you know, 10 or like no people. And it's like, well, cause you're measuring by different terms, you assholes. <laughs> right. And instead of evacuating the area, it's still very populated. Yeah. Yeah. I, because again, you know, environmental racism, why would they care about making sure people can be moved and, and have housing and have their lives relocated when they can just, you know, 
say sorry and, and say, well, no one died directly and, and, you know, clean it up kind of enough to get the public eye off of it. Right. And we've seen that, you know, over the years, several times with, with anything from like oil spills. Um, we saw that um, I'm suddenly at loss for the, the town in Pennsylvania that started people realizing how bad the rail lines were. Um, Palestine. Yeah. Palestine, uh, East Palestine, um, which <laughs> American cities are magic that the, <laughs> the, the word is Palestine, but all the locals call it Palestine. We've talked about like U S cities having weird pronunciations, but um but anyway, you know, I mean, that's so this is, you know, it's colonialism, it's environmental racism. Um, this is a good example of how it's like eleven dollars uh, a pound that they they buy the uranium from Niger from and, and like the way France structures this. And then they use some and they sell some to other countries at like two hundred eighteen dollars a pound. And of course, they're getting so much energy out of this where that eleven dollars, you know, would be a ripoff without reselling it for $218 um, a pound. So this is like very much the colonial structure, the colonial tax, right. And, and, and how uh, neocolonialism works, you know, they, they basically force the deals. They make sure that, that the colonized countries only can extract raw materials. They buy it for them cheap. And then they sell them back, you know, finished goods or they sell finished goods to other countries in trade. And, it's way more than than the cost of labor, the cost of trade to make up the difference where there's kind of this, you know, invisible colonial tax to these colonized countries. And West African countries have had enough of it. And this one is um, the third of three revolutions. And so you're going to see a lot about like ECOWAS. Um, ECOWAS is, is a lot like the Lima group. It's, it's one of those, you know, um, economic packs propped up by the West along the global South. Uh, the countries buy into because there can be some economic benefits as long as they are liberal. And a lot of these um, heads of these countries are installed <laughs> through colonial means and, and they're very liberal and very supportive of the West. And you can see very clearly ECOWAS has suspended three countries, Burkina Faso, Niger and Mali. Gee, I wonder why. And they're talking about going in militarily and they're, they're using ECOWAS as their justification to do it. Um, and that would be a very, very dangerous war to go into West Africa. The other thing they're justifying it with because um, the U.S. has expanded with AFRICOM. And, of course, France does not like losing its colonial territories and its colonial deals um, is, you know, Russia. And Russia is perfectly capitalist themselves. This is not some, like, you know, altruistic or, or you know, some socialist country doing this. But Russia has its own trade and, and Russia trade. Russian trade has been long established in Africa from back when it was in the Soviet Union and, and traded with a lot of African countries. Um, and Russia has, you know, increased exports of grain and things like that to different countries in Africa as the West has, has you know, not been beneficial with its deals. And as sanctions have gone on and, and the Ukrainian war has gone on. Um, and so you'll see justification that like it's a, it's a Russian, you know, Imperial, and we have to save we have to save these horrible, you know, Russian backed coup plotters, um, you know, as the the war in Ukraine. I don't want to say die off, dies off because people are still dying there um, and it's still going on. And, and I think they very much will fight till the last Ukrainian because Zelensky is just, I don't know, fighting it out as, as long as he can. But like that war is, is in a total stalemate and, and, and there's nothing like those counteroffenses have totally failed. And, and it seems like the West is turning away from Ukraine. Uh, but in spite of that, Russia is definitely still going to be a big baddie in the West. Um, so Swiss, I, I, Swiss intelligence is starting to label Zelensky as increasingly authoritarian. So it seems like, <laughs> yeah, they're going to turn on. Like at the very least back. Europeans are getting sick of giving him so much money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and I'm sorry, there are more states that have been suspended than, than those three, but those are the three I know of that have been suspended in ECOWAS. Um, but yeah. Um, so <laughs> the, the Ukrainian war is the hopes for the West in that war are dying off, which scares me that they're going to either increase, you know, AFRICOM, especially with these revolutions in, in West Africa, uh, or they'll they'll increase the pivot to Latin America, or of course just escalate in Taiwan, which they seem to be doing now to hope for a war with China. Which I don't know who the fuck thinks that's a good idea, but apparently a bunch of people in the U.S. government do. Um, 
And so that's that's pretty scary stuff. But the, the war in Ukraine itself, uh, from a political perspective, is winding down from boots on the ground. It is still raining terror on Ukrainian civilians in the service of a proxy war and just incredibly tragic. Um, and in West Africa, of course, we are seeing a bunch of revolutionary movements, and we just hope that they can either hold up to invasion or the West backs down. Um, for some kind of economic reason on the invasion, which I, I don't think is super likely. Um, and so for as long as, as these revolutions can last, hopefully permanently, you know, all power to the people uh, and the West African people rising up. All right, great. So we're going to resume the Gramsci reader. Um, again, we are on slide 76 on the, the left side, the page 50 side. And we're going to start the third paragraph down in Russia. The free expression of individual and combined energies has swept aside the obstacles of pre-established rules, words, and plans. The bourgeoisie sought to impose its hegemony and failed. Accordingly, the proletariat has taken over the direction of political and economic life and is establishing its own order. Its own order, not socialism, since socialism is not conjured up through a magical fiat. Socialism is a historical process, a development from one social stage to another that is richer in collective values. The proletariat is establishing its own order. It is constructing the political institutions which will ensure the autonomy of this development, which will place its power on a permanent footing. God dang, this is we're still in that section where I want to stop after every paragraph because it's just all good. Um, <laughs> I just want to reiterate again. Um, you know, socialism is not conjured up through a magical fiat. It is a historical process, the development from one social stage to another that is richer in collective values, right? So it's not a checklist like boom, boom, boom. Now you've done the socialisms. It's not instant. Like you take over a country and bang, now we magically have socialism. It is a large process into an entirely new economic model um, that values social needs over the needs of capital. Um, moving on to the reading list, you have something to, to jump in on that paragraph for Prez. Um, then we're going to go to dictatorship is the fundamental institution guaranteeing freedom through its intervention of coup de main by factious. Yeah. Factious. Okay. Factious minorities. It is a guarantee of freedom since it is not a method to be perpetuated, but a transitional stage allowing the uh, creation and consolidation of permanent organisms into which the dictatorship, having accomplished its mission, will be dissolved. This, of course, is talking about dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, after the revolution in Russia was was not yet free, for there existed no guarantees of freedom, for freedom had not been organized. The problem was to create a hierarchy, but one which was open, which could not harden into a class and caste order. From the mass, from number, it was necessary to attain, oh, why is my page cutting off? There we go. To attain oneness so that the so, a social unity existed, so that authority was only spiritual authority. The living nuclei of this hierarchy are the Soviets and the popular parties. The Soviets are the basic organizations to be integrated and developed, and the Bolsheviks become the government party precisely because they maintain that that state power should rest upon and be controlled by these Soviets. Um, one little touch, and I would hope that the crowd that came from the Marx Madness, I'd, I'd hope really any crowd, including, um, you know, from any part of the Chunkaluta side as well, would um, know good and well that the Soviets were just the workers' council. Right. Because it but it is used interchangeably with people from the Soviet Union. Uh, and then, of course, we're used to hearing Soviet Union as a country and a lot of those Russian words um, from back then, like Gulag or whatever, like seem to have weird conjured meaning in people's heads. So just in case you're unaware, the Soviets being referred to here are the Workers' Council, the alternate government that existed and coincided after the fall of the czar. Um, and that took over in the October Revolution. Um, throughout that the Russian Revolution in 1917, there was a chance all power to the Soviets to take it away from the Duma and replace it with worker power. So that is what's being referred to, the Soviets, uh, the organizational structure. We've talked throughout this about revolution is not about destroying. There's a level of destruction that must be had to knock down what is in your way. But revolution is about building, and that is what's most important. What are you building? And Soviets 
was the model uh, that Russians and, and other people in the Russian Empire and other countries used to build their power uh, during the fall of the Tsar and, and, of course, during especially the October Revolution. This was also written in 1918, so this was before the Soviets were abolished. Mm, okay. Um, out of the Russian chaos, these elements of order are crystallizing. The new order had begun. A hierarchy is being constituted. From disorganized and suffering masses, one moves up to the organized workers and peasants, then the Soviets, then the Bolshevik Party, and finally one man, Lenin. It is a hierarchical grad gradi gradation based on prestige and trust, which forms spontaneously and is maintained through free choice. Of course, people in the West will just call that cult of personality, but whatever. Ah. <laughs> uh, where is the utopia in this spontaneity? Utopia is authority, not spontaneity. And it is utopia to the extent that it becomes careerism, a caste system, and claims to be eternal. Freedom is not utopia because it is a basic aspiration. The whole history of mankind consists of struggles and efforts to create social institutions capable of ensuring a maximum of freedom. Once this hierarchy has been formed, it develops its own logic. The Soviets and the Bolshevik Party are not closed organisms. They are continually being integrated with one another. It is this that freedom holds sway. That is, freedom is guaranteed. They are not caste, but organisms in a continuous state of development. They represent the development of consciousness. They represent the capacity of Russian society to become organized. All workers can take part in their so uh, Soviets. All can exercise their influence in modifying the Soviets and bringing them closer into line with what is wanted and needed. The direction being taken by the Russian political life at the moment is tending to coincide with that taken by the country's moral life, by the universal spirit of the Russian people. There is continual movement between the hierarchical levels and uncultivated individual un yeah, an uncultivated individual gets a chance to improve himself in the discussion over the election of his representative to the Soviet. He himself could be the representative. He controls these organisms because he has them constantly under review and near to hand in the community. He acquires a sense of social responsibility and becomes a citizen who is active in deciding the destiny of his country. Power and awareness are passed on through the agency of this hierarchy. From one person to many, society is such as has never before appeared in history. This is the Alain Vital. Is that how you say that? Sorry, I thought my mic was on. Um, yeah. This is the Elan Vital of the new Russian history. You might have to tell us what Elan Vital means. Elan Vital. I'm blinking. I know it's French. Okay. Let's see. Uh, I've got life force or vital principle from what I've looked up. So we can vital that. impetus. Vital impetus. Okay, that sounds right. Vital force, yeah. Okay. So my the, the, brain is fried. Yep. So we're gonna say somewhere between life force and vital impetus. And I think vital impetus states are the best from that of the new Russian history. In what way is it utopian? Where is the pre established plan that people want to bring into operation, even against the grain of economic and political conditions? The Russian Revolution is the triumph of freedom. Its organization is based on spontaneity, not the dictates of a hero who imposes himself through violence. It is a continuous and systematic elevation of a people, following the lines of a hierarchy and creating for itself, one by one, the organs that new social life demands. But is it then not socialism? No, it is not socialism in the ridiculous sense that these Philistines, with their grandiose blueprints, give the word. It is a human society developing under the leadership of the proletariat. Once the majority of proletariat is organized, social life will be richer in socialist content than it is at present, and the process of socialization will be continuously, continually intensified and perfected. Socialism is not established on a particular day. It is a continuous process, a never-ending development towards a realm of freedom that is organized and controlled by the majority of the citizens of the proletariat. 
signed and to AG for Antonio Gramsci Avanti, July 25th, 1918. Um, and that ends section one, uh, which was socialism, Marxism, 1917 to 1918. Um, that was a big section, obviously coincided closely with the Russian revolution. And a lot of it was ripping on people like claiming whether uh, the Russian revolution was socialist or not and, and Marxist or not. And there are a bunch of, you know, Graham should basically call them a bunch of book worshiping grifter, you know, D bags. And, and that sounds about right. He's uh, so petty. <laughs> hey, we like, we like a petty Marxist, right? We like Marx. Yeah, we like Lenin. Complaining. We like Gramsci. Yeah. 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 You know, um, Get your hands dirty. Get some backhanded comments in. That's that's how you write good theory. Uh, so with that, um, we can move on to section two, which is working class education and culture. Uh, the introduction section of of section two starts. Questions of education and culture were always of central importance to Gramsci. His early educational thinking revolves around the problem of how working class people can become intellectually autonomous. If this can be achieved, they can lead their own movement without having to delegate decision-making to career intellectuals. They can then be capable act of acting as a ruling class. Um, basically like, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, think for yourself. <laughs> it's easy to lecture people about think for yourself. But usually when people say think for yourself, they're talking about like, think like me. Right. Disagree with this thing. I want you to disagree with. Um, whereas, you know, this is talking about intellectual autonomy. Um, it means there's not a dependency on certain type of leadership, but the people are the leadership. Um, and uh, so this is this is a section, I assume, of Gramsci, you know, hammering that out, apparently. Huh? Well, we're going to see this later, too, with the whole common sense stuff and. Uh, especially we're going to come back to this with the section Americanism and Fordism and intellectuals and education and, and mm. uh, popular culture um, and his whole thing on art and language. Nice. Um, but this is also like, you know, most people are born and raised and go to school and no one is really raised a capitalist, right? You're not going mm. to school and you're learning to be a capitalist, you're going to school, you're learning that. And the, this is Althusser, where he goes more into this in depth with this whole ideological state apparatus. You're going to school, you're learning math, you're learning history, and they're teaching you how to function in society. And the way that you function in society is how you function under capitalism. So they're teaching you how to be capitalist, how to be capitalist, just by teaching you how to be. Mm. Okay. So by being capable of acting as a ruling class and being capable of being decision makers and being able to lead your movement, not only are you able to understand what socialism is, but you're able to conceptualize what the world should be under it. This, uh, th this echoes a lot um, of something, you know, a lot of people, well, no, um, growing up boys, there's, there's this, obviously you've got to be trained for adulthood and, and there's this echo of like raising you to be a man. And it's, it's basically training you for misogyny, right. Um, for the role that like, I must be provided and I must be in charge of this and, and I must be tough and not have emotions and, and things like that. So there's a weird echo there too. Well, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, you have kids, but if you mm -hmm. have kids and you're listening, or if you have a niece or a nephew or a cousin that you're around and you see them doing math homework, even mm -hmm. like the math problems they're teaching you. I remember I fucking sucked at math, but I remember <laughs> through my misery, like it was like, if you're buying six apples yeah, for $5 each, they're teaching you multiplication, essentially trying to, to buy from a grocery store. Oh yeah. Those, those were kind of word problems. We got a lot. Yep. The, there, there's the socialization you get by going to school. And the, the and this, again, if you're interested in this, Althusser goes into this um, with his essay, literally called repressive and ideological state apparatuses. Um, but like, 
the whole educational system literally teaches you how to function here. Mm -hmm. Um, Even like just pay attention to how the word problems are or pay attention to how they're teaching history or how home, home economics or if they even have that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We had, we had home ec when, when I grew up and, and yeah. Um, Yeah. That that also obvious the obvious one is is history and other types of social studies. You know, I was I was when I I I, I was good at math and I'm yeah. good at history now. And I struggled with history in school and and I don't think a lot of people that know me now would believe that. But you know, it's it was a lot of obviously memorization, which is my strength, but also you know a lot of a lot of this myth making in there, which can be very confusing because like you're taught one thing and then you're like, Oh yeah, you know, that cherry tree thing's obviously bullshit. And then it's, well, well, what is real? And then you get into conflict with the teachers and then there's struggle there. Yeah. And then that's the repressive aspect of you have to learn to, to handle authority. But uh, even let's say you're learning English, mm-hmm. you're learning English, like you learn grammar, you learn structure and you learn to speak. Um, you're not learning English. You're not learning like they make you read books and shit, but you're learning literature and you're learning how to read um to work later on this is why you have so many fucking like comp sci people barely knowing how to construct a paragraph Mm. Um, like they're teaching you a language so you know how to go out into the world and then be a productive worker you you can see this in higher education too like higher education is more directly like i'm doing this to get a job which of course, college loans and that not paying off is, is is coming to a bit of a head there. But there's long been the ridiculed like, oh, you know, the person that that has, you know, uh, some any shamed degree. Right. And and a lot of, of shamed degree too, even like philosophy and stuff, they're going to have very targeted political bends, um, which are, are going to conform more with with society, especially capitalism and, and colonialism. Uh, but even then, you know, like, oh, you got a liberal arts degree and now now you're serving coffee at Starbucks type shit. Right. Um, because it's so blatantly expected that like school is to work and, and higher education is to get you a job and not like to be higher education. And it's supposed to be a one to one. You should be you should be a philosopher if you get a philosophy degree. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a computer programmer, and and my only degree is in business management, which <laughs> for degrees there, you know. Um, but yeah, you know that that's that's a hard thing because I'm I'm in a field where, like you said, you know, modern times, a lot of people don't know how to construct a paragraph in in, in computer science, but also people have been educated for that job because it's a trending job now, and it, and schools have adapted around that, but programming for years was just mathematicians or people that just stumbled across the job and figured it out, you know, um, and, and kind of learned from coworkers and from the work itself. And so it, it's kind of interesting to see that transition because that's happened in at least my lifetime. Um, I don't know if every listener, you know, has happened in their lifetime or, or not depending on their age, but I'm, I'm 37. It's definitely transitions happened in my lifetime. So um and continuing on did you did you want to read now prez sure educational opportunity and provision for working class and peasant children despite some progressive reforms from the uh geolity period remained woefully inadequate in italy during the early years of the century this is the introduction not written by gramsci by the way this is written by the editor (laughs) um the states the state school system was badly under resourced teachers were poorly paid and demoralized compulsory compulsory education ended at the age of 9 post primary education since the 1859 cassati cassati act had been divided into three main streams uh ginasio and liceo akin to the American junior high and high school, scuola tecnica or professionale for the lower professions and white collar jobs and scuola normale where primary teachers were trained. The upper tiers, liceo and university received a disproportionate amount of the fu- amount of the funding 
and the system as a whole discriminated against children from the working class. In addition, literacy rates in Italy were among the highest in Europe. Illiterate, sorry. In addition, yeah, literacy rates in Italy were among the highest in Europe. So we're, we're used to hearing that um, the other direction. So that is literacy rates are lower is what that means in, in the way you're used to hearing it. But that is that's very confusing from versus the way we're used to hearing it. Well, it, it's so bad that I think saying illiteracy rates is is more accurate. I think back back then it was like 90%. Well, actually, we're going to get to it in the next sentence. So in addition, illiteracy rates in Italy were among the highest in Europe, rising steeply as one moved from the larger towns to rural areas and from north to south. In 1911, census recorded illiteracy rates for people over the age of six as 11% in Piedmont, 13% in Lombardy, 37% in Tuscany, 58% in Sardinia, and 70% in Calabria. Sardinia is where Gramsci is from. Calabria is South Italy, like on the mainland, South Italy. Okay, like towards the boot. Yeah. So 70% of people from the region of Calabria can't read a sentence. Yeah. So this is, and this is not something new to um, capitalist system, although, you know, Italy was a, a newly formed state at this point. Um, but you see that, you know, even in, in budding formation of a state, but there's, there's definitely class and casts and, and we've talked about it many times on, on, um, the podcast, uh, about, you know, inequalities in schools, because that, that's something that's very relevant in the modern, you know, world, uh, especially modern United States. Um, and of course we earlier did black reconstruction, which talked about reconstruction, essentially founding, the public schools in the United States, um, largely, you know, for black freedmen, um, but really for the benefit of the whole public. And, and that being an ax that is uh, a thorn in the side of, of all, all racists and that the whole libertarian movement and, oh, you're charging me taxes is that's of course, okay with taxes for cops and war, even though they'll, they'll usually say they aren't until they're pressed. Um, you know, that all comes from, from anger at taxing plantation owners um, for, public systems and school inequality. And it's enforced now by, you know, municipal taxes funding schools um, so that you can have good schools and in good neighborhoods instead of, you know, schools being equally funded across on a federal or at least state level. Well, so think about what I was saying about uh, Althusser and the idea of education being there for capitalism or whatever system. Um, and then we have Piedmont, Lombardy, and then Tuscany is kind of like industrial, but also it's a little closer to the south than, than Piedmont and Lombardy. But these are very industrialized. And then Sardinia and Calabria are southern and very agricultural and you know, putting aside the fact that we're leftists, and even if you're not leftist, you can be progressive and just generally have the belief that people should have access to education. Putting aside that uh, more moral stance, why do you need to read if you're a peasant? From just practical purposes, why do you need to read if you spend your whole day in a field? Yeah, and, and that especially yeah. can be a good guard against, you know, them getting too political or whatever, just yeah. in that cycle of work. It's so it's yeah. it's both um it's both, you know, a, a maintenance of the system from a preparing people for their, their societal duties uh position, um, and it's a maintenance of the system in a defensive way, right? Yeah. That's that's I mean, and and by that you can see it it um, as a form of violence by that extension, you know, yeah. um, I'm, I'm always careful with that because, you know, things being a form of violence is important to say, and some people need to really understand that to, to comprehend things that are violence. Um, but where is the line that kind of waters down, you know, cause we don't have another, another word <laughs> that's basically, you know, violence, but the conventionally thought of kind. And, and so I, I get a little, but you know, you could still make that case. Right. Yeah, I mean, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that like we shouldn't have 
no, fully. educated peasants. <laughs> yeah, fully, fully understand and agree. We're saying we're putting our heads in the the um, views of someone that doesn't that that is very right wing or has no moral stance or a very societally given moral stance um, that's not very left wing. You know, so yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. The Italian labor movement, and notably the reformist wing of the PSI, the Italian Socialist Party, had responded to this situation since the 1890s by making education a central plank plank of its program. The socialists set up their own evening and day schools for both adults and children and campaigned in and outside parliament for the eradication of illiteracy and the introduction of a compulsory free lay education, the last of these in order to check the educational influence of the Catholic Church, because a lot of people would learn to read by reading the Bible in, in, uh, in church. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, makes, um, that makes perfect sense. And, and, you know, any book can be a tool for reading. Uh, since we're, at, obviously, we're going to bring up the Catholic Church a lot. <laughs> we're talking about Italy and Gramsci and, and um, but uh, something, you know, me as a conflicted, but out of, for the sake of, of, oops, I'm back in the microphone, for the sake of, of, of not fighting unnecessary fights, uh, intra-family, am a quote unquote practicing Catholic. I, you know, something I, I try to keep an eye on is, is what the church is fucking doing. And the San Francisco, we forgot to hit this in current events, the San Francisco Archdiocese. Um, and I'm I'm from Missouri. You know, I, I actually know people that because Missouri was, you know, it's all over the country. But Missouri, especially the St. Louis area, Wisconsin, you know, there's a few places that were hit a little harder um, with the, the sexual abuse scandals of the Catholic Church. And um, so I know, you know, people personally that were victims of it. It's, it's a very difficult thing to discuss. Um, but uh, uh, San Francisco had such major inflow of cases and they're, they're, you know, paying the the victims for settlements that they're claiming that they're filing bankruptcy for it, which doesn't sound very great. Um, but it's really not the case that they're going broke from it. It's much worse than that. It's that they're filing bankruptcy because that's a way out of that, that liability, right? That that's a way to, to minimize those payments, um, or to minimize future payments to file bankruptcy. They're not like falling apart and all Catholic church will go under in San Francisco. They're playing dirty and avoiding that liability. So be aware of that. That's especially grotesque. And that's not the angle people are understanding. People usually see sexual abuse um, in the Catholic church. And some people are rightly outraged at the hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Some people are well aware that um, white suburban Catholic um, can be kind of the other evangelicals, the great Christian upholders of white supremacy. Um, some people, you know, um, have their own reasons um, or, you know, just cannot stand that the church is covered for, for sexual abuse like that. But some people get this myopic view that um, white supremacy and, and power covering um, for sexual molestation of kids and stuff is, is uniquely Catholic where they just like to dig on the bad things. Kind of the, the, um, you know, we talked about martyrdom dumb and, and Westerners, you know, trying to always want to be on the good side and stuff. And I think that that robs a little of the, the sympathy um, for the victims sometimes because <laughs> you're not, you're getting more snarky than, than genuinely upset at these horrible things. And I think that's led to the conclusion that's like, oh, you know, I, I have no sympathy for you, fuck you, which is the right comment. But I think people like catch that snark and they're not even thinking like that's to get out of liability. That's like super fucked up. And, and people just don't connect those dots because they're not truly angry. They're snarky angry. So let's remember to be truly angry in the name of those victims and fight for those victims, not just be snarky. You can go on with the reading. I'm sorry to sidetrack. Oh, no, it's fine. By and large, however, and despite progressive intention, the reformist conception of socialist education reproduced a bourgeois paternalistic model of teaching as the dissemination of a body of knowledge to the unenlightened masses and, quote, and the, quote, elevation of this massive cult, of this mass to, quote, unquote, culture. 
End quote. In many cases, moreover, so it, by that he means just like uh, we need to bring these people to the to the correct culture. They're they're low lowbrow. In many cases, however, the content of what was taught of what was taught was either a simplified socialist propaganda, a literature of moral and political education, or it was identical to the traditional curriculum. Gramsci's approach is in many ways more radical. He starts from the assumption that, quote, everybody is already cultured, unquote, but in a primordial and undisciplined way. He begins, in other words, not from the point of view of the teacher, but from that of the learner. And he emphasizes that the learning process is a movement towards self-knowledge, self-mastery, and thus liberation. Education is not a matter of handing out, quote, encyclopedic knowledge, unquote, but of developing and disciplining the awareness of which, of disciplining the awareness which the learner already possesses. Gramsci consequently criticizes popular universities, parentheses, often PSI-sponsored, similar to university extension in Britain and universités populares in France. Uh, Close parentheses. These, these are more just like uh, what we would consider today public schools in the U.S., um, which were much more radical back then when everything was like Oxford and Cambridge and, or Harvard. Um, Gramsci consequently criticizes the popular universities for dispensing quote-unquote bits of knowledge without taking account of the different needs and background of a working-class public. He also repeatedly criticizes as paternalistic the reduction of socialist ideas into a simple language and argues that complex ideas cannot be vulgarized without falsifying their meaning. Workers active in a political movement have to make the effort necessary to grasp them. See, for instance, culture and class struggle in this work page. Is it in this work? In SCW pages uh, 31 through 34. I don't think that's this. Anyway, um, whatever SCW is. Sorry, I was muted. Uh, I was going to say, if that was this work, that would be in the revolution and the... um, something against capital uh, revolution against capital and the discipline sections. And that was talking about the Russian revolution at that point. So I don't, I don't think that was this work. That would make sense. Yes. Not in this. I just control F it. Okay. So it's somewhere else. In the political party, education plays a central role for Gramsci because through it, working class members can develop a critical understanding of their own situation and of the revolutionary task and so liberate themselves from their dependence on an an upper strata of intellectuals who tend to deflect their class demands towards reformist solutions. Two further themes represented here indicate the direction of Gramsci's thinking on education and culture at this time. The first is this twin vindication of a kind of school which can form a modern proletariat, quote unquote, schools of labor, and of a school able to provide workers with an education in the humanities rather than just vocational training, men and machines. Oh, schools of labor and this one, men and machines are the names of the readings we're going to read, the essays we're going to read. These two positions, which appear to be at odds with one another, are perhaps reconciled in his vision of a quote-unquote new educational tradition emerging emerging in post-revolutionary Russia, one in which the working class fuses, quote, manual labor and intellectual labor. See Questions of Culture, the essay. A quote-unquote common school in which a broad general education is offered prior to specialization was always central to Gramsci's conception. It is these ideas which he will later expand in the essay, Americanism and Fordism. Americanism and Fordism, 
and in the prison notes on education, see sections 9 and 10 below, when he talks of the need to found, quote, new relations between in- intellectual and industrial work, end quote, and to create, quote, a psychophysical nexus of a new type, end quote. The second theme is that of a revolutionary culture. Writing in 1921, Gramsci maintains that the Italian avant-garde movement, Futurism, is revolutionary because of its quote-unquote productivism and its iconoclastic hostility to the mummified traditions of bourgeois art. The essay, Marionetti, the Revolutionary, that the inflection is supposed to indicate it ends in a question mark. Uh, I'm not sure if, if I inflected it properly. Although Gramsci himself was later to modify this judgment quite radically compared to the essay, A Letter to Trotsky on Futurism, also in SCW pages 52 to 54. Uh, Dave, can you look up and see what SCW is? Yeah, I'll take a look. Oh, this is Gramsci's Selected Culture Works. Mm, Okay. Yeah, it's on Internet. So you can go on Internet Archive. It's just selections from cultural writings. Okay. It's also edited by David Forgax, who we're reading from right now. So SCW is selections from cultural writings. It is, as you can tell, mostly on his cultural stuff. And, and for those that you're not familiar with the Internet Archive, it's just it's archive.org, and you can just um, – I think the books are – like some of them are free and some of them cost, but uh, but you can borrow it's like anything, I think. So like it's free for a certain amount of time, almost like an Internet library. We could drop yeah. this in the show notes, I think. Yeah, we could. Maybe like a, a URL directly borrow. to it. Um. Anyway, not, I don't need to get hung up on this right now. <laughs> Although Gramsci himself was later to modify this judgment quite radically compared to a letter to Trotsky on futurism from uh, Selected Cultural Writings, page 52 to 54. The 1921 article remains striking for its contrast with contemporary conceptions of socialist culture as edification or as proletarian inheritance of bourgeois culture, and it reveals Gramsci's affinity with pro-avant-garde Soviet positions of the time. Certain aspects of Gramsci's educational outlook, notably his recurrent emphasis on discipline, his deference of the traditional curriculum, his insistence on the virtues of sweating at grammar and logic in order to learn to think critically, have been described as quote-unquote conservative, and have been the object of criticism from several quarters. There is certainly some justifications in this view. So this this criticism is coming from the the, the pedagogy schools that are are uh, kind of the Montessori type uh, that are saying like we should let kids have free form learning environments. The kids learn best when they're able to explore the way that they seem most interested in. Um, Gramsci's educational writings do constitute a problematic legacy for the left, but their conservative aspects need to be understood both in relation to the culture of Gramsci's time and to his own experience as a quote-unquote scholarship boy from Sardinia. They also need to be weighed against the radical democratic and liberatory aspects which are present in his educational thinking as a whole and which emerge clearly in these early pieces. And, and that both because we we've ended the section um, um, we'll be doing socialism and culture next time. um, But both because we just finished the introduction on working class and culture and for time, I think is a, a good stopping point. Um. I think it's it's you know a, a little bit and and if we don't mind um, so avant garde people are probably familiar with the art movement 
Uh, although modernly it's, it's, it, I think it's more of like a, a side joke in, in, in movies or, or like weirdness, right? People think avant-garde is just like, Oh, there, there's a toilet. It's art. Um, but, uh, avant-garde really just it, it means like front guard but it's it's basically like the, the the innovative type of art which is how it gets those those crazy weird you know arts is avant-garde um so when it's saying pro avant-garde that would be from the word itself um a more innovative branch of of uh, or a more innovative uh, line of thinking in the soviets i don't know if there's a specific um avant-garde soviets that's being referred to here that you're familiar with it all, Prez, if we want to comment on that. Um, well, so the the Marxist avant-garde is like... Uh, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you think on that. I'm going to go into to just kind of... Yeah, give me a few seconds. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Uh, while you're taking that few seconds, I'm going to comment on, you know, obviously this this section is talking about um, it, it tying education to culture, which makes sense with common sense and, and how... People are trained through education for their their jobs and and for their their um, lives um, in a society, right? And um, this is fitting very much a a radical model that um, that education, rather than being like a formality, a dictation of facts, right, and and then a testing of that, is more of a process of thinking um, and and more of a process of understanding. Um, which, you know, naturally will become a little more individualized. Um, that naturally takes a lot more participation, you know, like everything, everything's more of a project than a lecture in that sense. Not that people can't learn from a lecture and there aren't reasons for them. Um, but, you know, that's a little more sense of, of a, like a hands-on guided learning. Um, and that does seem much more fitting rather than prep preparing people for authority and setting up a structure that's easy for teachers to maintain. Um, you're setting up something that's centered around the student um, and preparing them to be able to bring themselves out of their, their mind, essentially, right? Like be able to mold themselves in the image they want to mold themselves in. Um, so... Soviet avant-garde is the predecessor to Soviet realism. Mm, okay. And Eisenstein was part of the avant-garde movement. Okay. Um, but cultural theoretical analyses of avant-garde um, criticized mass culture. So you have Walter Benja ben Benjamin, Benjamin, depending on how you want to pronounce it, with his uh, 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 work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Uh, we're going to do an episode on him on the Minion relatively soon, actually. Um, and then Adorno and Hork Horkheimer with their Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is just uh, kind of depressing. You should read work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction if you haven't already. But um, in those two, Benjamin and Adorno and Horkheimer are essentially, in one way or another, Benjamin is a little better, um, arguing that the, the, the mass production of art and culture into some kind of mass-produced industry destroys art um, in a way. Mm, okay. Um, so that... And what? That's that's not a, a, an unfamiliar stance for a lot of people, but we're used to like packing that into our very capitalist view, right? That profit ruins art, yeah. um, but mass production could even without the profit motivation. We're saying, well, they they, they link uh, mass production to capitalist profit motive. Mm. Okay, okay. So they're they're not talking about like uh, the ability the the ability to put like a print in your, like the Soviet Union mass producing mm -hmm. a print so you can put it in your bedroom, so you, like your living room, so you have something nice to, to make it look nice. Um, they're talking about like, uh, you know, mass production of superhero movies kind yeah. of. Yeah, the Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's a remake and a sequel. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> kills creativity. To, vul to vulgarize a very good essay. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that that's good. Uh, I also do just want to bring up too, since uh, uh, you brought up Eisenstein, and that is uh, um, some of people would very much recognize if people know much about Soviet history. Is the, of course the the decorated, the, the incredibly decorated uh, Soviet director, um, one of the the, the uh, greatest movie makers uh, that ever lived, uh, was also gay and Jewish, and was had possibly the greatest photo. I've ever seen where Eisenstein was sitting in the czar's chair, just chilling, laying across it, uh, which, you know, as, as someone uh, who uh, had lived under the czar and, and every bit of, of, you know, the, the anti-Semitic monster uh, the czar was, that's just, that's gotta be like peak photography in human history. Eisenstein rules. Go watch battleship Potemkin. If he haven't. <laughs> yeah. So Sergey Eisenstein, the best. Um, so with that, we're going to wrap up. Um, this has been Mark's Madness. We read books. There's a number of ways you can get a hold of us. Uh, you can get a hold of us at Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com or chunkalutin 1973 at gmail.com. Um, you can get a hold of us at Twitter at the same handles. Uh, we, of course, do have a Mark's Madness Discord that is open to the public uh, if you want to talk to us more directly. Uh, we, as well, do have a Chunkaluta Discord um, for people that are, are either in there for certain organizing purposes or you can be brought in through the Patreon. Um, Chungmani, too, knows a little more about how that works. Um, and um, as always, you know, uh, we're using the, the, the Chunkaluta funds to... to do a lot of things. Um, there was just Chunkaluta funds used to help pay for Sundance. Um, and that means that with Sundance now uh, winding down or over, it'll be time to turn that into the winter drive. Um, so be on the lookout for the GoFundMes um, to help uh, people on the res and help organizing efforts as well as, of course, you know, the Patreon helps not only go into those funds, um, but helps uh, Shugmani to live <laughs> as well. Um, and I think that's it as far as plugs right now. Um, do you have anything, Prez? No, I got nothing. All right. Uh, well, once again, it's been Mark Manis, part, part of Chunkalutin Network. We read books. My name is David. I'm Prez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.